Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm standing here to announce the indictment of defendant Rex Andrew Hurman, 59 years of age. He's been arrested by the Suffolk County Police Department's homicide detectives, and he's been indicted in a grand jury presentation by the, the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office for the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. That was District Attorney Ray Tierney on Friday, July 14th, 2023. After 13 years, Suffolk County law enforcement finally identified a man that they believe is responsible for at least three of the murders associated with the Long Island serial killer. The first eight episodes of this podcast shed light on the damage done to the original investigation by a corrupt police chief and district attorney, how 11 victims found along Ocean Parkway had yet to receive justice. If you haven't had a chance to listen, please do. I promise it will give you great insight into the complexities of this investigation. Those episodes brought a much needed closer look at the happenings in Suffolk County law enforcement and their effects on the case of the Long Island serial killer. I'd like to introduce New York State Senator Phil Boyle. Thank you, Nicole, and thank all of you for being here. Why are we here? Melissa Bartholomew, Amberlyn Costello, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, Jessica Taylor, Valerie Mack, Shannon Gilbert, and the victims known as Baby Doe, Asian Doe, Peaches, and Fire Island Doe. In the recent months and past year, we've learned some new information. I'd first like to thank the great investigative journalist at Unraveled Long Island Serial Killer. I'm sending letters today to New York State Attorney General Letitia James. I'm asking to name a special prosecutor to look into the early investigation into the Gilgo Beach Long Island serial killings. There are far too many conflicts and questions that are still in place 10 years later, and people want to know that everything that could be done was done to try and get justice for these victims and their families and to ensure the people of Suffolk County that their police department at the time did everything that they could to solve this case. After a decade with no answers, voters installed new officials in charge. And in January of 2022, the new district attorney, Ray Tierney, and the new police commissioner, Rodney Harrison, formed a task force, which includes the FBI, the New York State Police, and the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office. Within six weeks, they identified their suspect and then spent 16 months building their case. And we've learned a lot over this last month. In this episode, we will bring you up to date with the latest developments. You'll hear from two women who cross paths with the alleged killer. I speak with Carrie Rawson, daughter of serial killer Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK killer. She gives us insight into what the Hewerman family may be going through. And you'll hear the voice of the suspect himself. 
from ID and Joke Productions. This is Unraveled. Long Island Serial Killer. The last four weeks has been a non-stop stream of information on a case that has been mostly quiet, at least for the eight years I've been investigating. I guess an arrest can do that. We've had multiple press conferences, search warrants, and on Friday, August 5th, we learned the identity of the victim known as Fire Island Jane Doe. Here's Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney. Morning, everyone. On April 20th, 1996, Female remains consisting of legs and feet were found on the bayside shore of Fire Island. Then approximately 15 years later on April 11, 2011, additional remains consisting of a skull were discovered at Tobey Beach in Nassau County. In July of 2011, the Suffolk County Crime Lab linked the two sets of remains via DNA analysis. It was determined that it was the same person. Since 2011, that victim was known by various names, including Fire Island Jane Doe. Today, we are here to announce that as part of the Gilgo Task Force re-examination of all the evidence in the case, we are able to identify Fire Island Jane Doe as Karen Vergata, who was 34 years old at the time of her disappearance. From what we've learned, Karen Vergata lived a very hard life. She gave birth to two boys, but was hit by a bus while pregnant, which was the assumed cause for her son's cerebral palsy. Unable to care for her sons, child welfare officials placed both boys with a foster mom in 1992, and she adopted them two years later. It's been reported that no missing persons case was filed for her, yet it's believed her father tried filing one, but he was told, or at least he understood, that he could not because of her age. Karen struggled. There were minor brushes with the law, but she always stayed in touch with her father, and it's clear she was missed by her family every day. The last time Karen's father had spoken to his daughter was on February 14, 1996, when Karen called him to wish him a happy birthday. After she vanished, he looked for her, and he hired a private investigator to try to help find her as well. According to her stepsister, Brenda Breen, he even gave DNA to the investigator in the hopes of locating Karen. Over the decades, he launched many searches, the last one in 2015. And then in 2017, he petitioned the court to declare her deceased. Unfortunately, her father passed in December of last year at the age of 87. We know police made the connection last October, but they decided to sit on the news until after the arrest of Rex Huerman. According to News 12, law enforcement did notify Mr. Vergata about his daughter's identification before he passed. Miss Vergata's disappearance was in 1996, which is 27 years ago. She lived on West 45th Street in Manhattan and was believed to be working as an escort at the time of her disappearance. Approximately six months after we formed this Gilgo Task Force, a DNA profile suitable for genealogical comparison was developed from the remains of Karen Vergata. In September of 2022, the FBI was able, via a genetic genealogy review, to identify Ms. Vergata presumptively as Fire Island Jane Doe. Thereafter, in October of 2022, using a buccal swab from a relative of Karen Vergata, we were able to definitively identify her. We are going to continue to work this particular case as we did the Gilgo 4 investigation. 
we're going to have no comment on what, if any, suspects we developed at this time. This is a confidential investigation, but our investigation is continuing. In a statement to Newsday, Karen's brother, Victor Vergata, expressed his gratitude to law enforcement for their relentless efforts and said, quote, I will continue to pray that they connect their findings to the person that murdered my sister, unquote. It's important to note that while Rex Heuerman was arrested for the murders of three of the victims found along Ocean Parkway, he has not been connected at this time to the murder and dismemberment of Karen Vergata. It was a search for Shannon Gilbert, a sex worker who went missing in Oak Beach, an exclusive community along Ocean Parkway, that prompted this discovery and ignited this investigation. When including Shannon, the remains belonging to 11 victims were found along Ocean Parkway. Karen Vergata, Jessica Taylor, Valerie Mack, and then the Gilgo Four, Megan Waterman, Amberlynn Costello, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, and Melissa Bartholomew. Rex Hewerman is charged with the murders of three of them. We also have the victims known as Peaches, her toddler, and the Asian victim, Gilgo Beach Doe, who are still waiting to be identified. But there is hope for answers on that front. In 2022, the Long Island Press reported that there was progress being made with the identification of Peaches and Baby Doe. In fact, the police department in Mobile, Alabama, posted to their Facebook page that they were searching for friends and family of Elijah Howell or Howard. Law enforcement believes that he may be a distant relative of Peaches. This suggests that genetic genealogy is being used to identify them. The Mobile Police Department also posted a picture of Peaches' tattoo, hoping that it would help identify her. There hasn't been any new information since, but we're hearing that an identification could be close. In the case against Rex Heuerman, the man police allege is responsible for the murder of at least three of the victims found along Ocean Parkway. Law enforcement has executed two main search warrants in the past month. The first, at the house in Massapequa Park, where Rex Heuerman lived. And the second, in Chester, South Carolina, where Rex Heuerman owns property and where his brother lives. We'll start with the Massapequa Park warrant. The house, previously described by Rex Heuerman as his childhood home, from the outside appears to be a typical Long Island middle-class house. The reddish paint color stands out. So does the fact that it's a bit run down in this neighborhood of contemporary houses. From the street, you see one level, a one-car garage, an unfinished porch, and some mature trees in the front yard. Aerial photographs show a small backyard with a second descending entrance on the backside of the home, which appears to lead to a basement level. Zillow.com lists the residence as a 1,300-square-foot home built in 1956. There is one sale listed in 1994, which is when Rex bought the home from his mother, Dolores Heuerman, for $170,000. But the house hasn't hit the market since, so we can't be sure of any potential changes or upgrades that may have been constructed inside the home. One of these rumored potential changes was an alleged soundproof room. This rumor was based on various statements that have been made, including from someone who said that Rex told them he was pouring two-foot-wide concrete walls. As well as testimony attributed to an interior designer who stated that she wasn't allowed to measure a certain room in the home. 
We've all seen enough serial killer movies to have our imaginations fill in the rest. But Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison set the record straight. Uh, somehow, I, I, um, I believe that the soundproof room and the vault, uh, that, that message got misconstrued. But there is a vault, there is no soundproof room. District Attorney Ray Tierney provided just one more tidbit of information regarding this vault. It was big enough to walk into and it was in the basement. The basement with the entrance that we can see from the backyard. It turns out that no human remains were found on the property. But whether or not women were murdered in this vault or in this house in general, neither would speculate on. Can we confirm that yeah. someone was killed inside the house? We can't confirm that at this time. I don't uh, believe at this time that we can say uh, the evidence does not point either one way or the other. What we can confirm is that Rex Huerman was in the possession of a lot of weapons. And it's those firearms that may have been stored in this vault. Approximately 279 weapons were, were recovered. They're being categorized. Some may not be complete weapons. Some may not be able to be defined as a weapon under New York state law. The defendant had 92 handgun permits. He had quite a few long guns as well. Gun laws differ from state to state, and New York has some of the strictest. While Rex Huerman is a self-described hunter, law enforcement confirmed he only had permits for 92 of these weapons. As far as we know, none of the Ocean Parkway victims were killed with guns, though guns could obviously have been used as a means to subdue victims by threat. Here's more from District Attorney Ray Tierney. The house could be categorized as cluttered. There is a great deal of stuff that was recovered. The list of items is quite large. Tangible items of evidence, as well as trace evidence, including blood and DNA and uh, hair fibers and the like. And now it's up to the job of the task force to go through that evidence. We won't know exactly what we have for quite some time. Forensically speaking, there's a lot of work to do. If law enforcement can place the victims in this house through DNA evidence, no doubt that would be a huge win for the prosecution. The district attorney has detailed the suspect's search history in the bail application documents, which is based on law enforcement monitoring his online activity. Now that they have possession of the electronics in the house, they'll also be looking for any evidence Rex Huerman may have left on these devices. Will they find photos or maybe even video? If the victims were tortured, as law enforcement has insinuated, did the suspect document any of that? It's heartbreaking, disturbing, and gruesome to think about. But the district attorney spelled out in the bail document that two of the Gilgo four victims were, quote, used by the killer after their deaths, end quote. If those are, in fact, the fantasies possessed by this killer, is it possible that there's video evidence for the purpose of reliving at a later time? No doubt this work will be tedious and will take time, and there's no promise of any particular piece of evidence acting as a smoking gun. One weird thing that we saw carried out of the Huerman house was an antique-looking doll in a glass case. Now, you may like or even collect dolls like these. Maybe not. That's not the point. In fact, the reason this may be significant is that several strange dolls were also found at memorials constructed where the bodies of the victims were found. Whether a connection can be made between the dolls will be up to law enforcement to decide. And one more thing about the search of Rex Huerman's Massapequa Park home. The backyard excavation generated a lot of public and media speculation. Here's Ray Tierney. There was ground piercing technology used in the backyard. There was nothing of note taken from the backyard as far as remains. And there were a number of disturbances that were found in the ground. But until you dig it up, you don't know what it is. 
Like a disturbance could be like a, a branch, a bicycle, uh, anything that's buried under the ground. You can see the impression of it, but you don't necessarily know what it is. And asking about with regard to the excavation in the back, if, if there were any large items of evidence recovered, and the answer to that question is no. Before we move on to the other search warrant, we did learn something specifically related to Rex Hurman's DNA. With regard to state and national DNA databases, uh, there are specific rules with that under New York and federal law. So usually that only happens when you have a person is convicted of a crime. As far as specifically the database, his DNA has not been entered in that database. We're going to, to wait. Just to clarify, he's not convicted yet. Are you not allowed to put his DNA into databases until after a conviction? Under New York state law, that's correct. So that's a big revelation. Even though they have his DNA, law enforcement can't legally run it through any national database to see if he matches against crimes committed in other states. Rex Hurman has connections to South Carolina and Las Vegas, but detectives can't run his DNA in those databases unless he's convicted. That's very different than most states. In California, law enforcement can take your DNA and run it upon arrest of a felony or conviction of a felony. No need for a conviction, an arrest will suffice. New York has stricter privacy laws, which is also why they were one of the last states to utilize genetic genealogy. It is fascinating that the New York crimes are kept in this bubble and not something I was fully aware of until now. While we're on the subject of other states, the second main search warrant was executed in South Carolina. The FBI and Chester County took the lead and specifically wanted the 2002 dark green Chevrolet Avalanche. This is the vehicle that law enforcement believes was seen by Amber Costello's roommate and eyewitness Dave Schaller, and ultimately linked to Rex Uerman. Agent Brad Bowers certified that he witnessed the car at the address listed on the warrant, and a judge signed off to search the car for anything and everything you can think of. While going over the details of this warrant, two things stood out to me. They are looking for any types of trophies. So we know that would include photographs, jewelry belonging to the victims, any items that could have been owned by the victims, such as IDs, notebooks, etc. But it also specifically lists Bibles on this warrant. Remember, Bibles come in all sizes. Police could be looking for a pocket Bible or a keychain Bible. It's been said that Amberlyn Costello would drift back and forth towards her faith from time to time and Maureen Brainerd Barnes went missing with all of her belongings. Maybe she had a Bible in her possession. We don't yet know who the Bible may or may not have belonged to. And another item that stood out was a search request for bounty paper towels, specifically the Bounty Modern Print Collection. This must mean that the victims had at least some fibers of these paper towels on them, enough at least to connect them to a specific production run. Whether pieces of these fibers were caught on the tape used to restrain them, or whether they were used in a more gruesome method, either to suffocate or to clean up, we can only speculate at this time. What we do know is that any evidence found there will be handled by a different agency, as Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney put it. I have nothing to provide with regard to the Brothers House in South Carolina. It's not my jurisdiction. We do know that South Carolina authorities are looking at Rex Hewerman in connection with the disappearance of a young woman in 2014 who went missing near the property that he owns. And if I had to guess, they're not the only police department taking a closer look at this new suspect. 
Before we move on, the revelation of this vehicle, the dark green avalanche, has brought with it a lot of questions, mainly in regards to the timeline and why law enforcement didn't put these crucial pieces together sooner. Our research revealed that Rex Heuerman was the registered owner of this vehicle from March of 2002 to March of 2012, when it was then transferred to his brother, Craig. According to DMV records, the car was not only registered in his name, but to his Massapequa Park address the entire time it was in his possession. So let's look at the timeline. In early September of 2010, Amberlynn Costello goes missing. December of 2010, four bodies are found along Gilgo Beach, one of them being Amberlynn Costello. In the winter of 2010, Dave Schaller, Amber's roommate, tells police about the dark green avalanche and gives a physical description of the client he witnessed with Amber the day before she disappeared. A description, by the way, that's a pretty good match to Rex Heuerman, the man in custody for Amber's murder. Whether this was December of 2010 or even early January of 2011, we can't quite pinpoint, but it's assumed the story was shared after her body was identified. In December of 2010, it was first reported that law enforcement had traced the taunting phone calls that were made by the killer to the family of Melissa Bartholomew to the area of Massapequa. It takes Rex Heuerman another 15 months before he transfers ownership of this car to his brother. 15 months. 15 months for law enforcement to connect these dots that the current task force connected in six weeks. Six weeks of going through decade-old files, which could have been done and should have been done in real time back then. It doesn't add up. I'm looking for anyone involved in the original investigation who would like to explain this. Perhaps the information that's out there is incorrect or incomplete, but the current narrative doesn't look good. You can find me on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter, or you can email us at unraveledtips at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Next time, we'll dive in and share what we've learned about Rex Heuerman's many properties, tax liens, and lawsuits. We're deep into our own investigation and can't wait to share with you all that we've learned. But first, I want to introduce you to two women who spent time with the man alleged to have brutally murdered three of the victims associated with the Long Island serial killer. We will also talk with Carrie Rawson, the daughter of the infamous BTK killer, about what the Heuerman family must be going through. And you get to hear the voice of Rex Heuerman himself. Few things are more devastating than a loved one that's gone missing. From Wondery, The Vanished is a podcast where host Marissa Jones tells stories of missing persons that have gone overlooked. She seeks out the real story from friends and family, hoping to help them find their loved ones or at least a sense of peace. Listen to The Vanished podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Are you looking for ways to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative? Gretchen Rubin is the number one best-selling author of The Happiness Project, and every week she shares insights and practical solutions in the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. Gretchen's co-host and happiness guinea pig is her sister Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood showrunner. 
Join Gretchen and Elizabeth as they reveal fresh insights from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences about cultivating happiness and good habits. Every week, they offer a manageable try-this-at-home tip you can use to boost your happiness without spending a lot of time, energy, or money. Suggestions such as follow the one-minute rule, choose a one-word theme for your year, or design your summer. They also feature segments like Know Yourself Better, where they discuss questions like, are you an overbuyer or an underbuyer, a morning person or a night person, abundance lover or simplicity lover? And every episode includes a happiness hack, a quick, easy shortcut to more happiness. Listen and follow Happier with Gretchen Rubin, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Only hours after news of Rex Huerman's arrest broke, we started hearing stories from those who had met the alleged Long Island serial killer. We interviewed Alexis on the last episode, who worked with him on an architectural design and became emotional thinking about his victims, women that she felt weren't all that different from her at the time. Young, desperate for money, and with few options. Alexis never turned to sex work, but our next guest did. Nikki had been a young student with a 3.9 GPA. She had no record, she had no tickets. She was your all-American sorority girl. But one night, a party turned into a nightmare when she was stopped by police and found to be in possession of drugs. What should have been rehab, counseling, and a few months of community service for a first-time offender instead became a three-year prison sentence, perhaps with Nikki's best guess, due to a judge who was up for re-election. When Nikki was released from prison, her options were very limited. Coming home, and I was young, I had nothing. Nobody wanted to hire me. They have to explain yourself, they have to decide if they want you, and they never do. I'm gonna skip ahead for a minute to the happy ending. After eight years, her drug offense no longer showed up on her record, and Nikki was able to get a good job and is now doing great. But for those eight years, things were tough. And to make ends meet, Nikki did dabble in sex work. One of her encounters was with the man police believe is responsible for at least three of the murdered victims found along Ocean Parkway. How did you feel when you found out? Honestly, I said to my fiance that I feel like if there it really is a multiverse, there's one where I went with him and I didn't come home. Here's my interview with Nikki about the night she met with Rex Huerman. Can you tell me how you were put in touch with him in the first place? Like, tell me about that encounter. I was on some of those sketchier sites, like back pages, and I had profiles, and we got in touch through one of those. Nobody ever uses real phone numbers because nobody wants a paper trail or anyone to know what they're doing. So it's like very sketchy, like talking on weird apps and things like that. What year was it? Do you remember? It was like 2015. What was the plan for that day? I would always meet in public because I just didn't really trust people. Was the plan just dinner? I told him if he met me in public for dinner and I felt comfortable, we could go where he wanted to go. I met him in the parking lot, but I did not see his car because I didn't meet him by his car. I met him going towards the front of the restaurant. What did you think when you first saw him in person? 
he seemed really normal. He seemed like, I mean, he was big and his weight was very imposing. Uh, you know what I mean? But he didn't seem weird. He seemed normal, like just a normal business guy, like any other guy. And I feel like that made him feel safe almost. I, I know this is going to sound weird, but I feel like he looked for girls that had records or had an addiction because they are less likely to go to the cops. And if they did go to the cops, way less likely to be believed. We were sitting down and we talked about his job. We talked about what I want to do for a living, like what I aspire to be. We did basic table talk. I know he thought it was really weird that I didn't drink. Like I just wanted one soda. And then he brought up, he was like, oh, are you a true crime fan? I kind of got excited. I was like interested in like the psychology of the killer. And when he asked if I knew about the Google Beach killings, and I said, yeah, everybody from Long Island does. That's when he got like weird, like real weird. Like his body language changed. His eyes like seemed like he wasn't really totally there. He did say something about how they would get rid of the bodies without getting caught, how he thought they would do it in such a, in a dark, desolate area where cops don't patrol. That just gave me goosebumps. After talking about the Yoga Beach killings and being really weird about it, at the end of it, he goes, I live right by Yoko Beach. Do you want to come back with me? So I said, you know, it's really late. I'd have to follow you all the way. I'm just kind of making an excuse to get out of it. And he was like, no, no, I want you to come in my car. Like, he was insistent. He did not want me to take my own car. I was like, I don't go in cars with men I just met and I don't even know. Did he get frustrated that you wouldn't come back with him? He seemed, like, very visually agitated. Like, he seemed annoyed, like, I did all this and I'm not getting what I want. But I didn't feel comfortable. Like, he scared me. And my gut told me I needed to get out of there. Like... I ended up calling a friend and having to meet me in the parking lot to make sure I got home safe. Your instincts were so spot on. And like, how, what do you chalk it up to? It was just the way he talked about it. I could tell like he was enjoying it too much. So when you think about Maureen, Melissa, Amber and Megan, how do you feel? I feel like they saw him as just a normal born businessman. And they went back with him and they didn't get to go home. They were in a desperate situation and they did what they had to to survive. And unfortunately, it didn't end up surviving. It's hard not to imagine the fate Nikki may have escaped and the terror those victims must have faced. As more details are shared in the press or in the courtroom about their final moments, I expect they will paint images too horrific to comprehend. But what's become abundantly clear is that Rex Hurman, as alleged by law enforcement, was able to lure these victims by portraying himself as just another boring businessman. That was Nikki's impression. And my next guest, who is part of a networking group with Rex, agrees. Her name is Dominique, and she's an interior designer. So tell me a little bit about the year this happened and like a little bit about the networking group. It was a BNI group, which is one of the main networking groups people join for either small or large business. According to their website, BNI, which stands for Business Network International, is the world's largest business referral organization supporting 300,000 member businesses in over 75 countries worldwide. 
it's not just interior designers or architects. There was a contractor, there were painters in that group, there was a cleaner. You can only have one person per industry in a spot. So they were looking for a new architect. And then they brought Rex. I met him in person probably five times. People in the group made a point to bring their significant other to the group to get to know each other better. He never brought his wife or daughter around at all. What you're supposed to do is socialize with the people who are in your industry and would get you work. So I found myself talking to Rex a lot over drinks. Like, did you ever say anything about his personal life or anything creepy? You couldn't get out of a conversation with this guy. It was just him talking nonstop about himself. It was always the same things over and over. And I hate that so much. I brought up if he listens to podcasts because that's what I do when conversations are just not going in a direction that I think I'm like actually getting to know somebody with. So I I started asking questions like, Oh, like what TV do you watch? What podcast do you listen to? He said he didn't listen to any podcasts. Then he asked me if I listen to podcasts and of course I go, Oh, you know, this, that here and there. And of course I listen to true crime. And he asked me if I know what the Gilgo Beach murders were. I was like, yes, I do. And then he goes on to explain that there's a serial killer in his like hometown where he lives now, killing people and that he never got caught. I asked Dominique how that conversation resonates now that Rex himself has been arrested as the Long Island serial killer. I can't like stop picturing his face, I like thinking about his eyes and how like they look just so empty. He was profusely sweaty. And this was December, January, February that I was seeing him in person, even in like air conditioned rooms, like just dripping sweat. That just that leaves an image in your mind. And as well as just shaking his hand, his hand just like felt dry and huge and just Something was off about it. Dominique ended up leaving the group. Rex's business was mostly government buildings, while hers focused on high-end commercial offices and residences. So there wasn't much benefit to their networking for either of them. Her life also got busy and she moved out of the city. But Rex was not done. I go to my boyfriend. I'm like, look, like Rex is calling me. Like, I wonder what this is about. And... He was like, oh, good luck getting off the phone with him, you know, because he would just talk about himself. And since he kept calling me and there was no point to this conversation, I stopped answering. So that's why he left the voicemail. This voicemail message doesn't necessarily contain any big reveal. Dominique still doesn't know why Rex called. They had no business together and she'd left the group. But it is the voice of Rex Heuerman. Listen to how ordinary it sounds, and then remember that this man is alleged to have brutally murdered three women and possibly more. Hey, this is Rex um, from the BNI group. I I actually heard you are no longer part of the group, but I still wanted to talk to you. I had a question for you. Um, I also wanted to touch base. So if you get an opportunity, you can always try me at the office. Or feel free to use my cell. Uh, Hope you're doing good. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks. So what is it like to listen to that now? Like when you hear his voice? It's scary, but at the same time, I almost feel 
like ashamed for being scared of a voicemail that has nothing scary in it. Cause I wasn't a victim. I wasn't his typical target. I keep telling myself, like, oh, you're fine. It wasn't a big deal. You just like knew the guy, but I don't really know how I'm processing this yet. What I can tell you is that I wake up in the middle of the night when I hear any sound and it scares the crap out of me. I think somebody's in the room. I think somebody's in the house. I'm paranoid about all my doors being locked. So sleep hasn't been great, but day to day is fine. These are two women who are alive today, who were not tortured or murdered, who did not lose a loved one. And yet, they are very much impacted by the realization that they were in close contact with a man whose alleged actions can only be described as evil. Now, try to put yourself in the shoes of his wife and his children. According to law enforcement, there is no reason to believe any of them had any knowledge of Rex Huerman's alleged crimes. His wife, Asa Ellerup, filed for divorce a week after the arrest. And the family's attorney has described the last few weeks as, quote, a profound and indescribable catastrophe, end quote. For more insight into what they may be going through, I reached out to Carrie Rawson, daughter of Dennis Rader, also known as the infamous BTK killer. My interview with her, next. Working in true crime for this last decade, I've built relationships with many victims and the families of victims. These are people who've experienced the worst horrors imaginable. To have empathy isn't hard. Their stories stick with you. Their resilience and commitment to justice inspire you. And when it comes to the cases of serial killers, no matter how many murders or how long they've been inactive, it's clear that upon identification, the serial killer's family members become victims as well. The majority of these families had no idea of who they were living with. Sometimes they themselves have suffered verbal, physical, or psychological abuses. And in a split second, when law enforcement comes calling, their whole lives are turned upside down forever. Every family is different, and every family handles a crisis in their own way. I spoke with Carrie Rawson, daughter of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. In 2005, Carrie's dad was arrested in Wichita, Kansas, and pled guilty to 10 counts of first-degree murder for killings that stretched from 1974 to 1991. Just like Rex Huerman's children, she was an adult at the time. Here's my interview with Carrie. We talk about what she went through and how she thinks it may relate to the Huerman family. When this arrest happened, I thought of you because I thought of his family and wonder, like, when you heard news of the arrest, where does your mind go? When I first heard about Rex's arrest, one, I was shocked because I was like, holy crap, like they caught Long Island serial killer. My first thought, I'm glad they caught him. And then you're like, oh, hell, does he have a family? You start asking or you start looking online and you're like, oh, he has a wife and kids, like young adult kids. And then you're like, crap, because like at that point, my PTSD comes back. It hits me 
And then it's like, I'm back in 2005 finding out dad was arrested. So few people have the experience you have and now this family does, right? Your insight is so unique. Going back to 2005, what was it like for you finding out? So it is definitely like that grief process of of steps where you're like tumbling down into shock and denial, depression, and then you hit rock bottom at some point. You're like starting to process and deal and cope and make new strategies and a new life. I talked to somebody else that had lost their husband just in a more natural way. She said she felt like you ping pong. People are like, these are your steps. And like, you think like, okay, I'm only gonna be in shock once. I'm only gonna be in anger once. I'm only gonna be in denial once. And that's not true at all for something this complex. You're like ping ponging around. And like, for me, it's been almost two decades. I asked Carrie to walk me through what those first moments were like for her. I had been in Michigan married for like 18 months when all of this happened. My brother was in the Navy. They had arrested my dad around the corner. My mom, they literally just scooped her out of that house because they didn't know what was in there. They grabbed my mom. She goes, I need my purse because she needed like her inhaler and medicine. They brought all my family in to question them. Then they cleared everybody really quickly in my family. Law enforcement called and they're like, we're finding evidence in your family's home, my childhood home. I mean, they had found driver's licenses of victims, jewelry. It was stashed under like a cutout thing and floorboards in the hallway. My dad had evidence directly tied to his murders, items he had taken from victims right there in a hallway that you're walking down constantly all day because our three bedrooms were there, the bathroom. The law enforcement really did my family a favor by calling us and letting us in. They're letting you deal on a level that they're not publicly telling. It was a big gift because I was in physical shock for five days. I was shaking. I was angry. I was in denial. I was arguing. I was trying to alibi my dad that night on the internet. I ran into like a clip of his audio from the seventies. I had never heard that. And I'm wondering if I had heard it, would I have known that was my dad? Because when I heard it, I was like, oh crap, that's dad. It explodes your whole life. Did your family return to living in that house? We moved my mom around for like months with family, really until after my dad pled guilty. She stayed at the same church, stayed at the same job. And like the inquirer was like stalking her. And she's like, this is my life and I'm not giving it up. She didn't even change her name. She was just like, this is my life. You can't take anything else from me. But she never slept in that house again. She was too scared. If you've been following the developments, You've seen the pictures of the search of the Huerman home. You may have seen photos of Rex's wife, Asa Ellerup, coming home with her two adult children, sitting on the porch with her clearly distressed son, who was reported to have special needs. Asa told reporters that the mattresses from the house were seized in the search and that she had nowhere to sleep when they returned to the house. I asked Carrie if she had a similar experience. When my uncle went in to go get stuff from my mom, He said that it literally looked like nobody had touched it and there was still the plate of her lunch sitting like somebody had taken the plate of her lunch from the table and moved it to the sink. This is what I'm confused about. What's the deal here with Ace's house? Like, why would they have taken the mattresses and why is she saying she doesn't even have a chair? It tells me some different things about my dad's case and Rex's case because we knew my dad was confessing that first night. They pushed my dad pretty hard for about six hours. And then they said, basically, look, we know it's you. We need the evidence. 
And they're like, if you don't give this up to us, we're going to toss your house and we're going to make it really difficult on your wife, the kids, and we're going to destroy that house. And he says, okay, I'll give it to you. They're saying that they took everything to test it. Like the mattresses were taken. Cause I think the speculation is that he committed crimes there. So while they didn't find any remains, I think they're testing everything to look for evidence of where the crimes occurred. I was thinking of him that he had maybe taken his victims downstairs, like in the vault we're hearing about, but then we're hearing was just storage now. But if he had actually taken them in the house, that adds another element. It's very weird to me that like they've gone back to their house. It's like they're not processing it and they're not understanding what's going on. I see them crying on their porch and I'm just like, oh my God, you guys need to get out of there. But another question that nobody thinks about, I'm like, what about their financial situation? Did that impact your mom? Oh God, it's so awful. So financially, my parents, neither of them made a lot of money. So my mom lost more than half of her income right away. They still had a mortgage. They had remortgaged that house for some debt. And honestly, I think to help pay for my college. And so she was still paying a mortgage on that house. Now she can't live there, right? And she didn't want to default to the bank. We had family and community help completely get that house ready to sell. But then she got paired up with somebody that was going to auction it off to try to like make extra money just on top of the mortgage just to help my mom. And the families got really upset about it and it was tied up in a lawsuit. So she was having to pay a mortgage that whole time because she couldn't sell it. And the reality is then we didn't want to sell it to somebody and have it be turned around to like film, like slasher films. It was being picked apart for eBay. So people were like taking bricks and the mailbox and the numbers on the house. Finally, some anonymous donor in California, they stepped in, they paid off my mom's mortgage, like $40,000. And they donated the house to the city of Park City and they leveled it and turned it into a park. Like it's an access to the park behind it now. So it's just an empty lot and will always be that way, belongs to the city. And then like the records of who did that will be sealed for 50 years. So I might be alive long enough to find out who did that. And so I feel like with Rex's house, the community already said they would all chip in buy the house, like basically give it to the city and flatten it. So I expect that's what's going to happen. When I'm looking at Asa, she has her hands completely full because she has a disabled son. She's lost probably almost all of her income. We don't know if she works. Like it's all going to be tied up. I expect massive lawsuits to come out of this. I see a lot of nasty coming out of this. So I think she's just sort of like, F you all. (laughs) I'm going to sit here in my house on my porch. I got a lawyer. I'm getting a divorce. I'm issuing statements. It's very different than my mom. There's not one right way to do this. She's handling it in her way of saying, this is my house. Forget all you guys. I asked Carrie about learning the details of her father's quote unquote other life. How she squares these brutal allegations with the man that she knew. When dad was with me, he was dad. And my guess is when Rex was with his family, he was Rex. If you watch YouTube of Rex and stuff, you see some humor, you see life, you see intelligence, you see normal things. You don't see a psychopath. We're only coming to it with hindsight and we're like, wow, that hammer comment is weird, right? but we're, we're bringing hindsight to it. 
right? So if anybody had showed you that video before he was arrested, would you have said that guy's a psycho? No. They also worked with his daughter. They had this normal dynamic that did not seem off. And he probably loves his daughter. Like, I know it's so complicated. When I was a little girl, I didn't always know who was coming home. Like, I didn't even recognize him. Your dad will come home and be angry or stressed about work or, you know, grieving something or upset about something. But it was like this dangerous person came home. And I never knew who was coming home in that white ADT van. Is there anything you've read about Rex that has stood out to you? They were both arrested at 59. They both have the same family structure, like both married, you know, a girl and a boy. They both had normal jobs. They both were known in their communities. They never were arrested. Same sort of proclivities for what drives them. They both strangled. There was bondage. It appears there was torture. So some of the same drive. They both were stalking. Rex was doing it like on cyber and on phones later. Would you guess that there was abuse going on in Rex's house? I don't want to speak for her family, but oh yeah. Even if they're not committing a crime in that house, they're bringing all their criminal material in that house and you're around it. And I swear to God, this is going to sound woo-woo and spiritual, but it's like it gives off this dark energy. So like when I was a kid, I was having night terrors and I was waking up telling my mom there's a bad man in my house. I didn't want to get out of bed. I asked Carrie if her father was ever honest about his crimes with her. They did the victim impact statements. And then my dad stands up. He goes, yeah, my family were like chess pieces that I moved around on a board. I don't think he meant that. My father was so insanely protective of my family. They can, or Rex, they can see right into your soul. And they know if you're bad or good. Now they know they're bad, but they can control it. These guys that are long-term that don't get caught, they're controlling their bad. They don't view you as a target. You don't sexually turn them on. They have control over it. I think once those masks are removed, it's almost like they're pushing you away from it again and maybe like trying to protect you from themselves as a monster. Like my dad would not talk about being BTK with me ever. It was like, I've done some bad stuff or I've made wrong decisions, but he's never once actually apologized for what he did to those people or really what he did in my family. Just, it's more like he was really sorry that he got caught. We're hearing that Rex is like easygoing, quiet, sleeping, chilling. Okay, if you're an innocent man, you ain't doing any of that, right? Like with detectives, they always say they go in there in that cell after they're caught and they're sleeping, then they're probably guilty. <laughs> because it's like you're releasing energy. The whole time they're thinking they're going to get caught. They're having to manage all these things, manage all this evidence, manage victims, like so much. It's insane. And then it's all of a sudden you don't have to do any of that. And now you can like take your vacation in jail. He's probably not relieved, but it's like, oh, cool. I'm not juggling 500 things and I don't have the anxiety of getting caught looming. It's happened. The Band-Aid's ripped off, right? Yeah, all the madness, all the masks, all the games, like how much effort and work these guys were doing. Finally, I wanted to know if Carrie had any advice for Rex's family. I was dying and I was rotting and then I realized I had power in speaking and then I just kept speaking and I learned to write and now I help people every day, like building a nonprofit, working on missing persons cases, 
victim advocacy, supporting friends through God awful stuff. Advice is just, just keep going. Whatever it is, I escaped in Harry Potter. I reread all of Harry Potter right after my dad was arrested because I was literally cracking it. I couldn't watch any sort of violent TV movies. I don't know how many times I've watched Friends because it's safe. And then sticking up for yourself, you know, making statements through the lawyer is great. I love seeing that. I hope she gets a safe place to live and the kids get a lot of support. Like that family needs a lot. And then therapy, trauma therapy. I found the conversation with Kara to be very insightful. She's had almost two decades to process. The Hewermans haven't even hit the two months mark yet. We'll be back next month with more updates and insights, including a deep dive into Rex Hewerman himself. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our early episodes on this case, please take a moment to do so. The story in the Long Island serial killer investigation is a deep and sordid one. If you know Rex Hewerman, or if you would like to contribute to our story in a different way, please send an email to us at unraveledtips at gmail.com or contact me directly on Instagram at Alexis Linkletter. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers and writers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and myself, Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID, Thomas Cutler. Our editor is Caitlin Cleveland. Lisa Rybakoff is our associate producer. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Nickelodeon was kid everything, but that marked one of the darkest chapters. Three predators worked at Nickelodeon. It made me wonder who was being hurt. Quiet on set, an ID true crime event, Sunday, March 17th at 9, on ID and stream on Max.